1: Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. Today's guests are Alice Wong, who covers China's credit markets for Bloomberg News from Hong Kong. She's been all over the biggest scoops from that region, and we're delighted to have you on the show.
2: Thank you for having me, James.
1: We're also very happy to welcome Mary Ellen Olson, who looks at commodity producers throughout Asia for Bloomberg Intelligence, also based in Hong Kong.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: We'll be discussing a big Indian story with her in a bit. Spoiler alert, it's not a Danny, though it could be heading that way. Before we get to that, Alice, what's the mood in Hong Kong right now? I was there a few weeks ago and everyone was still wearing masks in the street. Anyone who didn't risked a hefty fine. The whole world now is betting on a big China reopening. What's the story there?
2: Yeah, and me personally, I'm definitely in a very excited mood. But you know what's surprising is after almost, almost a thousand days uh, of the mask mandate and now the government dropping it, actually most people still choose to wear a mask. So we actually had a story on that today um, about you walk out on the street and most people are still wearing it. But I think the market is very excited about um, Chinese and Hong Kong government opening up so you can see um, all the markets are turning up uh, in the region here today.
1: Very interesting. Let's hope it keeps moving in that direction. And I really do look forward to getting back to Hong Kong. What a great city. So, Alice, let's talk Evergrande. But before we dig into the credit story, for listeners maybe not familiar, what is it? Why do we care? And why has it dominated the headlines in Asia and around the world for so long?
2: Yeah, what is Evergrande? Um, and why do we care about the story? So the sheer size of it that should be enough to catch um, readers' attention and listeners in this case. Um, this is a company that was founded in 1996. And just like a lot of other developers in China, um, property developers in China, it relied heavily on borrowing to fuel its growth and dollar bonds is among them. So it had about 1.97 trillion yuan. That is, uh, 287 billion US dollars in liabilities as of June, 2021. That is the most among uh, its developer peers in China. Um, it also was the largest dollar debt borrower among its peers. So what happens with it really carries broader implications um, for the whole dollar bond market in the region as well as China's nearly sixty trillion U.S. dollar financial system. Um, and it has defaulted in it defaulted in this U.S. dollar bond in late 2021. Um, fast forward, we're now in March 2023, um, and creditors are still not seeing concrete progress uh, on this debt restructuring. So um, that is why it's still dominating the headline, you know, because people are paying attention to this debt restructuring progress. Um, and also, Evergrande's restructuring will set examples for other real estate firms from the nation. Um, The sector has snowballed into record amount of default from once being one of the hottest bond markets in the world. Um, And Evergrande's own restructuring will be China's largest ever. Um, And it is only the only restructuring that is going on in the sector right now that is carried out by, dominated by the government.
1: But let's just back up there for a minute. Evergrande is a property developer. They make property. Surely that's a good business to be in. It's a huge population. There is a need for housing in China. What's what's going? Why can't they? Why can't they pay their debt?
2: Yeah. So let's talk about that first. How you know it's a property developer in China. It's one of the largest. It owns. It says it owns more than one thousand projects across almost three hundred cities in China. Um, and. Really, its problem started in 2020 when it had a liquidity scare, and then it said it's going to outline a problem to solve uh, its debt liquidity issue. But at that time, China wanted to address um, the over problem that has been existing in this sector for a long time. Um, and that is essentially what happened. You know, this is not an issue that is only belonging to Evergrande all of them are, are, are under the government's regulatory uh, crackdown. So all of them have run into the regulatory tightening. And again, that is not happening only with the real estate sector either. China has cracked down, on, as we have seen on the education sector, um, as well as the technology sector. Um, so China's ho- housing market began to slow down. Um, because the government don't want people to, the, the government's chanting slogan. Slogan is um, housing is for is not for speculation. So they don't want you to speculate on buying anymore. Um, and we also know what happened during the pandemic. China's economy is not growing as fast as it used to be, um, and China's population is also shrinking now for the first time in a long time. Um, and so there's the demand size also shrinking. So all of those components adding up together right now is a hard time for China's real estate sector.
1: So they built too much. They borrowed too much money. They they built the wrong kind of housing. What what was wrong with their business model?
2: Yeah, like you know you pointed out exactly. Um, they borrow too much. They relied too heavily on borrowing to fund its growth, and it's been. Um, a, a lot of borrowing in a very short amount of time that is really posing risks to the whole nation's financial system. Um, That's why China wanted to crack down on it.
1: So they have um, how much debt?
2: Well, I just mentioned Evergrande alone has um, over 280 billion US dollars in liabilities as of June, 2021, and that's this company alone, yeah.
1: And what's the latest situation with them trying to figure that out? They're they're in a restructuring. What are the key dates we're looking for here?
2: Yeah, they're in a restructuring. And what's really frustrating for people is it has promised timeline and deadline over and over again, and it has failed to deliver on them over and over again. So the next date that we are watching for really is March 20th. Um, It's a court hearing date. um, And... Last time at the court hearing, which has been adjourned to March 20th, Evergrande had promised the judge that it will present a plan and uh, have creditor support by early March. And we know, we know now is March 1st, and that is nowhere to be seen Um so yeah, those are the key dates that we're watching for right now. Um, and the up, just uh, just back, let me go back a little bit on this uh, lawsuit that I'm talking about. So what is called is it's a winding up lawsuit. Um, we have seen several developers, creditors, use this strategy in Hong Kong Core in the past few months. That is essentially when the company owes uh, you a certain amount of money that has not paid, the creditor can go to court and say, this, and say, this company owes me debt that is not paying me. I want to claim it to be uh, insolvent. I want it to go into lit- liquidation, sell its assets and repay me its debt. So many creditors have taken up this approach. Um, it, it's not ideal because if a company actually goes into liquidation, uh, it needs to buy or sell its assets and, um, you know, creditors will get their money. But not that is not the result that everyone wants. Someone just wants, some of them just want a better recovery. Um, and so Evergreen is now in this lawsuit and it has repeatedly adjourned its hearings and delayed presenting a restructuring plan. It keeps telling the court, I'm working on a plan, but it's just not presenting it.
1: Do we know what's holding things up?
2: Yeah, uh, actually, so there are a few things that the company is um, having disagreements with uh, a major group of dollar bondholders over um, that we have learned from sources. Um, so we, we may get into a bit of a new details here. here. Um, the so sources told us before that Evergrande has presented two solutions. The so first one is to just extend the debt. Um, And the second one will require swapping some of the debt into its shares, as well as shares of its Hong Kong listed units. Um, And now they have some disagreements over, you know, the equity valuation of those shares, um, which, you know, if the company is more bullish on its own share uh, valuation, whereas if creditors think of it less, it would imply a deeper haircut for the, the bondholders. Um, so valuation is one thing. We also learned that um, the company is only willing to offer a small percentage of is stakes in those units, whereas um, the creditors are demanding almost entire, Evergrande's entire stakes in those units. So that's another sticking point. Um, there are other things like the, the group is actually demanding the company to address is corporate governance issue you Now we have seen this happening how do we prevent this from happening again so that's among their demands um, those are a few things that they they just cannot get on the same page at the moment
1: and as you mentioned it's not just local investors here it's foreign bondholders as well who are we talking about are there any big names in there
2: yeah unfortunately i'm not sure i can't disclose that at the moment um, but yeah, you are absolutely right. Um, Evergrande debt is not just held by local creditors; it really has deep uh, implication for China's onshore financial system. But let's not forget, it used to be the largest dollar debt borrower. Uh, like I said, in China, uh, China's uh, real estate sector. So its dollar bonds are held by a lot of global investors. Um, big and small. And the group that I'm talking about here is an ad hoc group of dollar bondholders. Um, and they are just some of the big ones that are talking with the company. Uh, but that the company still need to, after convincing them, still need to convince this broader set, all of its dollar bondholders at some point to agree on a restructuring plan to really move the progress forward.
1: You mentioned a write-down as well, and obviously the company needs to get rid of some of that debt. What are we talking about? Do we have any sense at this point of how much of a haircut creditors might be taking here? That, unfortunately,
2: is not very clear at the moment yet.
1: Okay. And what will happen if Evergrande loses its lawsuit?
2: Yeah, that's the scary thing. Uh, As I was saying, a lot of creditors have been threatening with such lawsuits to get the company to come to the negotiation table. And I would say in Evergrande's case, it has definitely worked because the company's restructuring did pick up pace after that winding up lawsuit was filed. Um, But we have started to see some developers actually getting the winding up order from Hong Kong court and facing liquidation. So that's what's going to happen to Evergrande. Um, If you lose this lawsuit, the court can appoint a liquidator, come seize all of its offshore assets um, and sell them. And use them to repay his creditors. Another thing here is, you know, if Evergrande doesn't want to lose this lawsuit, um, it, it it's also important also important because the company's shares and this unit's shares have been on pause. They have been halted uh, since March 2022 because it could not deliver its earnings results. But it has since them been uh, on pause. And to get this lawsuit dismissed or resolved is among many conditions for it to resume its shares trading again. And if the shares do not trade for over 18 months, it could be delisted from Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So that's another thing that you know, the company needs to watch out for.
1: So it's obviously a huge story in China right now, and it also involves a man who was once the richest in the country and, and one of the most influential people. You know, he was um, across business, across politics, and worth about $42 billion at one point. Can you give us a bit of a flavor of that, please, Alice?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, Hui Kanyan, like you were saying, was once China's, one of China's richest and most influential businessmen. Um, he used to be worth 42 US billion US dollars, as you were men- mentioning, and now has lost 93% of that wealth. Um, he used. To, he also was very um, politically savvy. He has been part of the political advisory body since 2008, um, but now he's no longer part of China's people's um, political consultative conference anymore. So he's lost his wealth and his political
1: status. And in terms of the ripple effect from this whole Evergrande situation, what are the bigger implications for China's credit markets? I mean, has the default at this scale scared away foreign investors? Are 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 the developers now shut out of capital markets?
2: Yeah, absolutely, both of those things. So for one, um, a lot of developers cannot come to the market now It is, like I said, not Evergrande alone, because this is part of the making of China's crackdown on the whole sector. But Evergrande being the highest profile casualty um, is no doubt contributing to a a large part of this. Um, And as I was saying, the sector snowballed into record amount of default. What that has led to is the yields in the secondary market have become way too high. So um, they've now come down a bit to around 16%, um, but previously it reached almost 30%. And that means if issuers want to come to the primary market to borrow new debt, they would need to pay that much or even more to have an edge over the secondary market. And that is just way too much, um, you know, way too expensive for borrowers to come to this market again. So, this sector really used to be dominating not just China, but Asia's whole dollar bond issuance and has shrunk a lot um, in this past year. So, that's part one that is, um, issuers are shut out of the market. Um, And another one is just, yeah, like I said, there are a ton of defaults and unresolved. Um, debt issues and people are watching out for these restructurings and watching to Evergrande because that is led by government's efforts right now and people are um, looking for a clue of how the government wants to resolve all of these issues.
1: Okay, that's very interesting. Uh, Investors in these situations, they often have quite a short memory. They they take a hit, they move on, they come back because they want to invest in a huge economy uh, like China. Do, you, do we really think that Evergrande is going to leave a lasting impression that there's going to be something that, that China's not going to bounce back from?
0: That is
2: hard to say. Today, actually, we're seeing China's property market, um, I mean, in terms of sales, are finally bounding back a little bit. Um, so that is the latest data from February. Um, however, for dollar bond investors, I believe they will they will carry this memory with that how, for how long? I'm not sure. But, you know, for one, if the company's it really also depends on the company's restructuring plans, right? Um, if it's just going to extend its debt for 12 years, as we had reported previously, then people need to wait out those 12 years until they can finally get their money back. And I bet that's going to sting their memory.
1: Alice Wong of Bloomberg News, thank you so much for joining us. This is a fascinating story with broad implications, and we look forward to reading all of your scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. Thank you. Switching gears here a bit, as I mentioned earlier, we are very fortunate to have Mary Ellen Olson from Bloomberg Intelligence, also based in Hong Kong. Now, when we met a few weeks ago, Mary Ellen, we talked a bit about India which has been in the news quite a bit because of Adani. Just to catch everyone up a bit, Adani is a, an Indian ports to renewable energy conglomerate that was accused of accounting fraud and stock manipulation and experienced a big rout in its uh, stock and bond prices. There's a lot of concern now over whether it can repay the debt, and the news has really shone a light on all Indian companies, the way that they're structured and how they're run but we're not here to talk about Adani. Instead, we're going to dig into another big Indian firm, Vedanta Resources, which is getting a lot of attention and involves a highly also involves a highly levered tycoon. So to start with, I've got to ask, Mary Ellen, is this the next Adani we're looking at here?
3: Uh, well, I, I think there's some similarities between the two companies, but I think Vedanta is starting from a much different point than where we saw Adani. Uh, Adani's start Um, Adani's ports company is rated in the investment grade category in the low triple B space and of course Vedanta is rated in the low single B space so I think we can expect that it has more governance issues more liquidity and financial risk than Adani to to start with so just to kind of um set the stage. I think it's starting off from a weaker position. I think the similarity, similarities between the two companies, um, however, do raise some, some flags. And I think the key similarities would be that they're both, you know, run by the promoter, which directs the, you know, the direction that the company goes in. They both have very complex corporate structures, and that can limit transparency and also to some extent give rise to information risk. And finally, the companies both have a lot of debt and have used debt to grow their businesses. So I think that in general, there is some flags that can be seen across both of the the names.
1: So just to back up, um, let's just talk about the company itself. For those not familiar, what is Vedanta Resources? What do they do um, and you know why 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 do we care about them in terms of like the you know the indian and the asian commodity market
3: so uh the danta is a mining company its key industries are oil aluminum and zinc those are what comprise the bulk of its ebitda generation and i think that we care about them in the us dollar bond space be, is, because they've been a heavy dollar bond issuer at the moment the holding company has about 5 billion in dollar bonds outstanding and it does have liquidity risks and people are worried about whether or not they have the resources to to pay the debt especially given the fact that their majestic their debt maturity profile is relatively short term
1: but the the metals that you mentioned and the sector that they're in generally i mean that's been a good good one over the last few years right the the commodities have rallied the metals have have been in demand there's been a big boom why 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 would this company not do well
3: well i i think the There's a story, obviously, with all high yield companies. I think there's a story. And the story with this company really goes back to its corporate structure. Um, The the US dollar, uh, dollar bond bower and obligor is Vedanta Resources. So that sits at the top of the corporate structure but it's not an operating company. So even though it has all that debt, it doesn't have um, any operations itself. So it relies on the upstream of dividends from its subsidiaries. So its core subsidiary is Vedanta Limited and it owns about 70% of that. And Vedanta Limited owns 100% of the oil and gas assets and they account for about 25% of EBITDA. Um, And Vedanta Limited owns 65% of the zinc assets, which account for about 50% of EBITDA. And then it owns about 51% of the aluminum company, which is about 15% of EBITDA. So you've got to keep in mind that all these subsidiary companies, they also have debt and they also have, you know, CapEx needs that they need to fund. So what's left over is then, you know, what can be upstreamed to uh, eventually to Vedanta Resources to cover the obligations there. So that complexity creates a problem in terms of the efficiency of, you know, cash flows throughout the corporate structure to to repay all of the uh, debt obligations.
1: So can it meet its debt repay, uh, repayments and, and how does it do that?
3: Well, um, you know, it, it has some levers that it can pull. Its, its primary lever, lever has been over the past several months, the dividend upstreams, particularly from the zinc subsidiary, which is cash risk rich. Um, in addition to, uh, to that, it has some nominal fees that it can assess on its subsidiaries, and it can bring those monies up to the holding company. And of course, it can also rely on new funding um, from, from banks, either domestic banks or international banks. So those are the key levers that they're looking at at the moment. They actually came out today saying that they were looking at raising, raising about one percent 0.8 billion from banks and were in advanced negotiations in that regard at the moment, although they had, did not really name any counterparties or disclose any timeframes.
1: They're looking for foreign investors in that?
3: Um, they didn't really specify the banks, but the sense is that some of that would come from domestic and they're also looking at some international banks.
1: Okay. But based on their <laughs> yields right now in the um, dollar market, would they have to, would they? would they be able to get an affordable rate on that?
3: That remains to be seen. Um, certainly their, you know, their bonds themselves are, are yielding in the d- double digit territory. And press reports a couple weeks ago did indicate that the potential funding for the company was, um, was quite high. But previously, the company has shown um, a willingness to finance at, at pretty high rates. Back in 2021, they issued US dollar debt uh, at a at about thirteen percent or over so they they do show an ability to to bring in funds um, even if they have to pay high rates
1: and that yield you mentioned I mean to what extent do we think that's influenced by the situation at Adani at the moment
3: you know I don't I don't think that there has been a huge impact just because the starting rates um, you know pre the Hindenburg report on Adani were pretty high. You know, right now they're in the double digits. Uh, They were there then as well. Where I've seen more of a a crossover impact probably would be on the stock prices, which took a dive um, just this week. They were down, I think, up to 20, uh, no, about 10% this week. Um, And and that kind of coincided with all this rhetoric coming out comparing Vedanta and Adani. And of course, heretofore, the the stockholders had been receiving good dividends because of all these upstreams. But I think this idea that there's a a contagion risk uh, feeding into Vedanti helped push the the stock prices. So I've seen more of an impact probably in in the stock than in the bonds that okay. at least I can discern.
1: Okay. They already have a very low credit rating, right? Do, do we expect more downgrades in the, in the next few weeks?
3: Uh, Well, so at the moment, the S&P is the only company that officially rates Vidani and they rate it at B minus and they have a stable outlook. Moody's did rate the company, but Vedanta reportedly withdrew the, the contract after Moody's downgraded them to the triple C category on liquidity risks. Um, and S&P has said that the rating could come under pressure if they don't make progress in getting some financing in the door in a timely fashion. And as a rule of thumb, I think the rating agencies like to see you know, uh, an answer for how they're going to repay debt anywhere from three to six months before the debt matures. So they're coming up to that benchmark. They do have bonds that mature in, uh, April and may this year. So the agent, and then again in January, 2024. So I would expect that in the next couple of weeks, the rating agency would have to uh, follow up on its indication about where it sees the financing coming from and, um, making a decision about whether or not they need to to change the rating
1: one of them has a triple c that that's um you know if you read the small print of the rating agencies reports that implies very high probability of default is that what we're expecting
3: uh well i think that that's you know again this is a high yield company and there's always stories with these companies and Vedanta has been here before it has had a triple C rating before and has pulled out of it. Um, and I think, you know, at the moment the company is still saying that it is speaking to banks and and I don't think that we can totally discount that, um, even though they have not really pro- produced anything concrete at the moment. Um, I think one of the things that's in the company's favor is that they do have some time to play with. They can upstream dividends and S&P did uh, confirm that in their view, they could probably fund the debt repayments through the end of June through these dividend upstreams and other fees that the company could get in. So even if um, S&P does... Uh, change its outlook or its rating on the company, it still has some time to play with before there would be a danger of a default. And given the company's past track record in, you know, coming up with a solution, I think that that would be what's on everybody's mind. What can they do to, to turn this um, around in the absence of additional bank funding? But it does seem at the moment that that is uh, what they're focused in on and what they're Hoping to target in the near term.
1: Okay, but they they could also sell some assets, right? When they have things like Zinc International that they they've been trying to get rid of. What, what's going on there?
3: Um, so that so the sale of Zinc International would be would have a profound and material impact on their liquidity if it if it were to happen. And it does look as though that's being sidetracked at the moment due to um, government objection. So. What's happening is Zinc International are the African assets of um, Vedanta Limited, which which are wholly owned. And they are trying to sell those assets to their 65% owned Hindustan Zinc, which is the cash rich company. And that would in effect help transfer or pull about 3 billion out of Hindustan Zinc up to the Vedanta Limited level, which could then be um, upstreamed more readily to the holding company to help support its liquidity needs. Um, so that that actually would have been a helpful transaction, but again, it does look as though the government has objected to it. And even Vedanta itself has kind of stepped back and said that they need to get shareholder approval in order for that transaction to um, go forward. And the government is a shareholder.
1: Why does the government object? Um, the,
3: I think there's, uh, a couple of different things that have come out in the press in, in general, I think there's been some concern on the valuations that perhaps they're too high. I think also, you know, it's a related party transaction and, you know, the shareholder interest, you have to make sure that they're being, you know, wholly met. Um, from my perspective, the, the transfer of the zinc international assets, you know, one. The, they do require some CapEx investment for growth. So that could be a drag potentially on um, the consolidated company. And um, the final consideration is just the, the government itself, the Indian government, it has divestment targets to meet uh, under its budget. And it was planning on divesting uh, a piece of um, Hindustan zinc, when the announcement came out from Vedanta about the asset sale, the share price did drop um, on Hindustan Zinc, so that also could have affected the government's view of the transaction. So those are some of the things that, you know, have kind of been in the press or I've been thinking about about why the government could uh, be objecting.
1: Okay. Now you mentioned levers at the beginning. Are there any other levers that the company can pull?
3: Uh, I think... I think you mentioned one in terms of asset sales they have spoken in the past about potentially selling down pieces of their steel business or even some of their copper business but the the question there is on you know timeliness you know because those things may not happen within a time frame that could meet their liquidity needs Previously, they talked about selling down pieces of their listed companies. Um, but you know that could be more problematic in terms of, you know, uh, opening up new shareholders, which could create some some leakage from dividend distributions. Um, and and another avenue would be intercompany loans, although the government, um, but the company has said that they're not really interested in doing, or wouldn't do those anymore previously in some of the calls that they've had. But, um, I suppose that could be another avenue.
1: You mentioned the very high yields that they're paying. Uh, Do you think investors are being compensated for the risks here?
3: Well, I mean, I, I guess that there's a, you know, a right price for, for every, every bond, um, certainly i think that they're factoring a lot of the risks and i think that at the moment you know there's there's plenty of people out there that um, are on both sides of the fences about whether or not the government is going um sorry i keep saying the government the company can pay or not pay um but i guess the that remains to be seen you know if they if they come through with the uh the liquid the you know the financing and we're able to resolve their liquidity issues then some people will benefit for sure
1: and you 've been looking at this company for a long time, and i'm glad, I'm glad you raised the point that um, they, they are not this is not the first time that they 've been in this situation. You know the, the owner has faced liquidity woes in the past he has always managed to get the money and, and pay on time um, what 's different about it this time around
3: I think the the big difference. Um would be that there's probably a few more doors that are closed so that they do have to in the near term perhaps lean a little bit more heavily on the banks. Um, and, and I guess I'm talking about just market access given the state of the the bond market at the moment, especially for high yield issuers, we have not seen a lot of issuance and it doesn't seem a likely avenue for Vedanta to to refinance in at the moment. We already talked about, you know, HCL. I think that that, you know, gave a lot of people a lot of hope. Um, But that avenue seems to have been shut down by the government objection. And um, previously you had a situation where they were hoping to privatize Vedanta Limited. They've been down that road and um, have increased their stake. But I'm not sure that, you know, they would renew that at any uh, time in the near term. So it seems like they, they have a few more doors that have closed on them, at least um, unless unless they're able to come up with some some new ideas.
1: Okay, great. We'll, we'll definitely be watching with, with a lot of interest. We'll read your analysis of Vedanta and all things Asia commodities. And thank you so much, Mary, Ann, Mary Ellen Olson of Bloomberg Intelligence. You can read all of Mary Ellen's analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. And thanks again to Alice Huang from Bloomberg News. Read all of her scoops on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. Definitely keep an eye on that Evergrande story. Alice and her team will continue to break a lot of news there over the coming weeks. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. See you next week on the Credit Edge.